Elijah on Mount Carmel. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your family's, father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. <clears throat> Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. 
With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley, and slaughtered there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon. Um, it's great to see um, some new people with us here today. Uh, my name is Angie, and I'm um, one of the uh, local like licensed minister, a reader in training. So basically, I'm training to be um, a reader in the church. Um, so it's like you're a preacher with an L, an L play on for a learner. Um, and I'm also married to Steve. Um, and I've been in the UK for about 14 years, but before that, I grew up in Texas. So hopefully, you can all follow along with my Texas twang. Okay. Um, so today we've come to the end of our series on the giants of faith, um, and we're looking at Elijah, this prophet who was radical in his own day and who calls us to be radical in our day now. Um, so let's pray together as we dive in. Oh Lord, set these words ablaze with the fire of your spirit, that you might turn our hearts back to you again. Answer us, oh Lord, answer us that we might know that you are our God and we are your people. Amen. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Elijah asked this the people of Israel. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Elijah's question is a searing one. How long will you go back and forth between gods? How long until you make up a choice? on whom to follow. This question of which God we will follow is at the heart of our story today, and it's at the heart of what makes Elijah one of our giants of faith. 
So we've been traveling this summer chronologically through the Old Testament. And with Elijah, we've come now to the time of Israel's kings, about 100 years after King David, after the kingdom was split into two parts. Now when you read the history of the two kingdoms, it's mostly the story of one bad king after the next. The kings were meant to lead the people in how they worship the God of Israel alone, and how they rid Israel of idolatry, and in how they remained faithful to the covenant God had made with his people. So these were their, their basic marching orders. Worship God, get rid of idols, be faithful to the covenants. But in the entire history of the northern kingdom of Israel, there are no good kings, just an unbroken line of 20 bad kings. The southern kingdom of Judah fared marginally better with eight kings who were mostly good and 12 bad kings. So it's into this mess of evil kings and a divided nation, and a nation that was constantly going after other gods, that the Lord sent his prophets. And when we think of prophets today, we sometimes imagine people who can see into the future. But biblical prophets had a different kind of role. They were ones who encountered God profoundly. And then they were like covenant watchdogs who would call out the nation on where it was going wrong. Yahweh had made a covenant with his people, and Israel wasn't holding up their end of it. So the role of the prophets was primarily to speak out for God, to be covenant watchdogs, to call out idolatry and injustice, and to challenge the nation to repent and follow the Torah, the teachings and the covenant Yahweh gave to Israel. Most of the time, no one listened to the prophets. It was a pretty thankless task. So Elijah is the most prominent of our prophets, and he was sent during the reign of King Ahab, who has the distinction of being the worst of all of Israel's kings. 1 Kings 17, verse 33 tells us that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. All the sins of the previous kings were just heaped up and added to under Ahab. Ahab was largely helped by his wife Jezebel, who was a foreign princess, and who turned his heart even more towards worshiping Baal. So the people of Israel had worshipped Baal and other gods and idols of this region long before Ahab was king. But Ahab and Jezebel took all of that idolatry and made it into a new state religion. And they literally sat hundreds and hundreds of false prophets at their table. Jezebel also had an obsession to drive out all the prophets of Yahweh she could find. At the start of 1 Kings 18, we hear that Jezebel was cutting off the Lord's prophets. And Obadiah, one of the king's servants who feared the Lord, took courage. And Obadiah took a hundred of these prophets and hid them in caves and fed them with bread and water, which was no easy task as they were living in the middle of a famine. Now this famine had been going on for three years, ever since Elijah had gone to King Ahab and told him there would be a drought until Yahweh said otherwise through Elijah. So you can imagine, we have a really tense backdrop of our story today. It had been years of a wicked king's reign. There had been three years of no rain in the land. Elijah had constantly been on the run, and Yahweh's prophets were hiding out in caves. And in the palace of Ahab and Jezebel, there was a most wanted sign with Elijah's face on it. So when Elijah appears to Obadiah, and he tells Obadiah to tell Ahab that he's on his way, you know that a showdown is coming. 
Elijah calls for a contest, a God contest, on the slopes of Mount Carmel. He sets out the terms of their contest, and they're pretty dire for Elijah. He was outnumbered, 450 prophets to one, and they're gathering on Ahab and Jezebel's turf. If you follow football, it's like your football team is going to an away match at their fiercest rival, but they're only sending one player, and they're letting the other team have all the extra players at once and all the rowdy fans it can throw into the match. So in football, there's always a few brave supporters at away games, um, but Elijah didn't even have those. In verse 21, he comes near to all the people of Israel, the spectators of this God match, and he asks them this probing question, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And the people do not answer him a word. Elijah's word choice of limp is insightful. It comes from the Hebrew word pesach, and that means to skip or to pass over, to leap over. It can also mean to hesitate, to waver between, to limp between. The NIV translation uses um, the word waver for this. How long will you waver between two opinions? Other translations ask, how long will you hobble back and forth? Or how long will you jump back and forth? Or how long are you going to sit on the fence? Young's literal translation from 1898 asks, till when are you leaping on the two branches? If Jehovah is God, go after him. And if Baal, go after him. And that image of a bird that's flitting between two branches back and forth is so fitting. It's what the people of Israel were doing in their worship. They were jumping back and forth in their faith. One day on the branch of foreign idols and these altars to Baal that Ahab and Jezebel set up. And they were one day back on their old prayers to the God of Israel. Now we can look at all this idol worship as modern 21st century Western Christians, and we can think, whoa, those Israelites were so crazy. Like, how ridiculous is it what? They just kept bowing down to these idols, to these wooden gods, to these golden idols, these made-up gods. We are so past that now. But are we? Now, if we believe the entire Bible has something to say to us, and I earnestly believe that, then you find there's a lot in the Bible about not bowing down to idols. It's the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. Don't make idols and don't serve them. And all the warnings against idolatry in Scripture aren't just there for the sake of people living thousands of years ago. Those warnings are there for us too. So what are idols today? An idol is anything we care about more than Jesus. Anything we look towards to give us meaning and purpose and answers in our lives. And these things are so deeply cultural that we aren't always able to spot them. We're living so thick in our own culture, we can't see the idols that are all around us. The ancient Israelites worshipped carved wooden and golden idols because in their culture, that was how everyone thought. That was the way you got rain and crops and good health and babies. Idols were the way you got what you wanted and needed in life. And in our culture, we have plenty of idols set up around us, things we look towards for getting what we want and need in life. 
Idols are the things we think will make us happy or secure. Henry Nouwen asks, what is the basis of our security? When we start thinking about that question, we give many answers. Success, money, friends, property, popularity, family, connections, insurance, so on. We may not always think that any of these form the basis of our security, but our actions or feelings may tell us otherwise. When we start losing our money, our friends, or our popularity, our anxiety often reveals how deeply our sense of security is rooted in these things. And in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller identifies power, approval, comfort, and control as some of our modern cultural idols. So power idolatry says, life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Approval idolatry says, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. Comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure or this experience or this quality of life. And control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill in the blank. So we pursue things like success in our careers, romantic relationships, self-expression, family, money, material comfort, sports, perfect health and appearance. And when we elevate these things into what really matters in our life, we make the stuff into idols. We think they have power to save. We are like the Israelites in our faith. We're jumping back and forth between our belief in the true God as revealed in Jesus and our belief in all the cultural idols all around us. We look to so much stuff apart from Jesus to make us happy and whole. But our happiness and our health and our wholeness comes only from Jesus. So idolatry is cultural, and it's also sneaky because the kind of idols that attract our worship change over the seasons of our life. When I was 17 years old, I had no interest in having a career or making lots of money. I just wanted to be a missionary living in a hut, serving Jesus somewhere. But now that I'm almost 40, I'm suddenly noticing that a lot of our friends have had really successful careers, and they're making lots of money, and they have really nice homes. And I'm suddenly wondering if I made the right choice in pursuing ministry. Those idols of wealth and success draw my eyes a lot more today. And I think that if I just had a solid income and a good career, then I'd be happy and secure. So that question of, if I just had X, whatever X is, is a good diagnostic test for what idols might be creeping into our lives. <laughs> or put another way, if I can follow Jesus and still have X, whatever X is, a lot of the time, it's an idol. Anything that's more important to us than Jesus are idols or false gods. And only by the help of the Holy Spirit can we see them for what they are. But notice in our story, in verse 30, what happens to the altar, to the true God, when God's people flit around other altars? The altar of Yahweh inevitably falls into ruin. We can't serve God in idols 
without ceasing to serve God. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So back to our story. In this God contest, Elijah is outnumbered 450 ball prophets to one, and not even a few lonely fans are on his side. But here is where God shows up on the pitch, just like Elijah knew he would. Elijah and the false prophets agree to the rules of the contest, and their home team goes first, slaying its bull on the altar and calling on Baal to bring down fire. And nothing happens. The plain language of 1 Kings 18.26 makes this point powerfully. The prophets call out to Baal, but there is no voice. No one answered. It's a full warning of the Baal prophets calling out and limping around their altar. Now, this limping was a kind of liturgical dance that was designed to catch Baal's attention, a way they could get his favor. The word limp in verse 26 is the same word Elijah used earlier of the people. The people were limping around in their wavering unbelief, and now the false prophets are limping around in their dance to a false god. One biblical scholar points out that to limp along undecided is in effect to choose to dance with false prophets. So all this shouting and this limping in vain becomes pretty comical And by noon, Elijah begins enjoying the spectacle of it all. He taunts the prophets. Keep going, he says. Maybe Baal is busy thinking. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's out on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping. Elijah literally suggests that Baal could be on the toilet. He uses a euphemism, but his jesting tone is unmistakable. Baal is a joke of a god. And then, in huge contrast to this, watch Elijah up. Elijah calls the people to him once again. And it seems now, having seen the sheer nothingness of Baal, they're more willing to come. Elijah repairs the altar. He sets up stones to represent all 12 tribes of Israel. And remember, these 12 tribes are divided at this point. So he imagines the nation all back together at this altar. And he digs a trench around the altar that captures all the water, 12 jars worth of water, a symbolic number of the 12 tribes. They pour this water out on top of the offering. So Elijah is making it as hard as possible for the Lord. And then he makes a simple and a passionate prayer. O Lord, let it be known that you are God in Israel. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then, fire. Elijah calls upon God, and God sends fire from a clear and cloudless sky. A fire fell that was so powerful and so divine, it devoured all the offering and all the wood and all the stones and the water and the very dust of the ground. When the fire fell down, the people fell down too. The people believed, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, they cried. It is an incredible story. And if we were to stop it right here at verse 39, we could be content. Yahweh is shown as the true God. The people come back to him again. So let's get rid of idols and go after Yahweh again. He is the only God who can save. Amen. Now, this is a good ending. 
And if Steve had chosen to stop our Bible reading right here, we could get a shorter sermon today. And we could head out now for our picnic. But Steve likes long sermons. And (laughs) Steve is also faithful to God's word. The story doesn't end just yet. Stay with me for a few minutes longer. There's this really tricky verse 40 that caps it all off. At the end, Elijah seizes the prophets of Baal, and he slaughters them. Not one of them escapes. This is really disturbing. This part of the story isn't in the children's book. We have of this at home. So many learned biblical scholars will dismiss this verse, and they'll say that Elijah is just acting on his own initiative. Elijah has just gone off the rails. But what if he hasn't? Now, even though we shirk back at the slaughter, and rightly so, we should shirk back at the death of anyone, maybe we need this last piece of the story to get what the entire thing is about and to understand what makes Elijah one of our giants of faith. If you go to Mount Carmel today, you'll see the statue, an old statue that we probably wouldn't make today, one of Elijah's slaughtering the prophets. But perhaps the people who made the statue got something we often miss in our permissive, pluralistic culture today. Even as Christians, we put up with a lot of idols. We're like the ancient people and having multiple choices in how you can worship and live your life. We let a lot of false prophets speak into our lives, telling us how to find wholeness apart from the one true God. But idol worship is serious. Idolatry is serious. False prophets are a real threat to our life of Jesus. So this image of Elijah taking down all the prophets of Baal shows just how seriously Elijah took the worship of the one true God. Elijah's heart was set entirely on Yahweh, and he would not rest until all false worship of other gods was killed and God's people returned back to him again. There were laws in the Old Testament that called for the execution of false prophets, and here, horrifically, we see it carried out. This was a particular moment of divine judgment. Enough was enough. This isn't some kind of Old Testament God thing, this ill-educated mistake people often make. A lot of people think there's an angry Old Testament God and a chilled-out New Testament one. But no, there's one God in all of Scripture. And Elijah's drastic doing away with false prophets is the same thing Jesus was getting at when he said that if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Whatever causes us to sin, to turn away from God, must be cut off. The Old Testament is full of God's mercy and his patience and his lenience and his forgiveness. But God is also a God of justice and righteousness. And there will be a day of reckoning for those who lead others astray from him. We're to leave this reckoning to the Lord. But Elijah's zeal for Yahweh leads us to wonder, do we have that same kind of fervor? Who are the false prophets in our life? Who are we listening to? Are we willing to cut these false prophets off, to cut away all the voices that lead us away from the worship of our one true God? What needs to be cut off from our life with reckless abandon? Most of us listen to a lot of voices in this world. Our eyes are often drawn to idols, even after we know Jesus. Now, it's hard work to get rid of the idols in our lives. 
And only by the Spirit of God can it happen. But the good news of Elijah's story and the good news for all of us and the story of our faith is that this is possible. This is what Jesus wants for us. And don't we want that too? Wouldn't we rather have the fire of God's presence than be limply dancing around an altar to a false god? Jesus offers us that fire, that presence. May we get off the fence then. May we stop wavering back and forth, stop flitting from branch to branch. Yahweh is God, and by the grace of God, may we follow him.